we're talking today about Titus Andronicus. Okay, so like the six lectures which are already on iTunes, these lectures are each going to be about an individual Shakespeare play, and I'm going to try and approach it by a kind of meta-question. So I'm going to try and distill what criticism has been interested in into one question, often a question which seems ridiculously oversimplified, but to try and use that as a way of showing some of the different things we might try and do when we study uh, Shakespeare plays. So I hope that the question is going to be a starting point uh, for you to think about um, how you might approach this play and what you might do with it in relation to other plays. And the first one I want to talk about is Titus Andronicus, a play written probably in 1593, the first play of Shakespeare's to go into print in 1594. The question I've chosen for Titus Andronicus is, why doesn't Marcus give Lavinia first aid? Okay, why doesn't Marcus give Lavinia first aid? And I'm going to back up and talk a bit about the play and why that's a question. Uh, I'm not expecting you, when you come to these lectures, particularly uh, to have read the play, and I hope that uh, the way I talk about it will give you enough sense uh, of the context to make sense of the points. So, let's back up and talk about what's happening in Titus Andronicus. So, as many of you will know, Titus Andronicus is a Roman play which begins with two interwoven plot lines in a tightly packed and unbroken long first act. So the first of those plot lines is about who rules Rome. Okay, so it's got that Roman play interest in, uh, in, in rule, uh, in the qualities of a good ruler, and in political succession, forms of succession. Uh, you could see those in uh, Julius Caesar or in Coriolanus also. So Saturninus and Bassianus, who are the sons of the previous emperor, are vying for the emperorship of Rome. They're also vying for the hand of Titus Andronicus's daughter, Lavinia. In the end, these two prizes are separated out. Saturninus becomes emperor, and Bassianus, who is Lavinia's chosen husband, gets the girl. And this all takes place against the backdrop of the triumphant return of Titus Andronicus at the head of his victorious and much depleted army. Titus brings with him to Rome prisoners from the Goths uh, who he's conquered. Tamora, queen of the Goths, her sons Chiron, Demetrius and Alabus, and the mysterious Moor, Aaron. Saturninus takes Tamora for his queen. Her son Alabus is sacrificed, lopped to pieces and burned by Titus and his eldest son Lucius as an offering to the gods. Tamora secretly vows revenge and when Lavinia and her husband Bassianus see Tamora having an assignation in the woods with her lover Aaron, they are attacked by Tamora's sons Chiron and Demetrius. The brothers kill Bassianus and they rape Lavinia on the body of her husband. And then, in order that she cannot reveal their names, they cut out her tongue and cut off her hands. It's in this state that she's found by her uncle, Marcus Andronicus. And this is the scene uh, that I want to focus on. It's a scene which has caused critics and theatre directors enormous difficulty. Marcus describes in a long speech, a long and highly poetical speech, Lavinia's bleeding and mutilated body, seeming to do nothing other than address her and aestheticise her. Now, because the length of the speech is important to my arguments here, I'm actually going to read it out uh, in its entirety. So this is in Act 2, Scene 4. Act 2, Scene 3, if you're using uh, Jonathan Bates' Arden 3 edition, Act 2, Scene 4, more generally. 
The stage direction reads, Wind horns, enter Marcus from hunting. And then this is Marcus's speech. Who is this? My niece that flies away so fast? Cousin, a word. Where is your husband? If I do dream, would all my wealth would wake me? If I do wake, some planet strike me down that I may slumber an eternal sleep. Speak, gentle niece. What stern, ungentle hands hath lopped and hewed and made thy body bare of her two branches, those sweet ornaments whose circling shadows kings have sought to sleep in and might not gain so great a happiness as half thy love? Why dost not speak to me? Alas, a crimson river of warm blood like to a bubbling fountain stirred with wind doth rise and fall between thy rosed lips, coming and going with thy honey breath. But sure, some terrius hath deflowered thee, and lest thou shouldst detect him, cut thy tongue. Ah, now thou turnst away thy face for shame. And notwithstanding all this loss of blood, as from a conduit with three issuing spouts, yet do thy cheeks look red as Titan's face, blushing to be encountered by a cloud. Shall I speak for thee? Shall I say tis so? Oh, that I knew thy heart, and knew the beast, that I might rail at him to ease my mind." Sorrow concealed like an oven stopped doth burn the heart to cinders where it is. Fair Philomela, why she but lost her tongue and in a tedious sampler sowed her mind. But, lovely niece, that mean is cut from thee. A craftier terrius cousin hast thou met, and he hath cut those pretty fingers off that could have better sowed than Philomel. Oh, had the monster seen those lily hands tremble like aspen leaves upon a lute and make the single sorry and make the silken strings delight to kiss them, he would not then have touched them for his life. Or had he heard the heavenly harmony which that sweet tongue hath made, he would have dropped his knife and fell asleep as Cerberus at the Thracian poet's feet. Come, let us go and make thy father blind, for such a sight will blind a father's eye. One hour's storm will drown the fragrant meads. What will whole months of tears thy father's eyes? Do not draw back, for we will mourn with thee. Oh, could our mourning ease thy misery? Now, we don't really know how quickly plays bowled along in the Elizabethan theatre, but Greg Doran, contemporary theatre director at the RSC, cites a figure of about 800 lines an hour on the modern stage. So, a speech of... 45 lines would last between three and four minutes. It's quite a long, static time on stage, just as it felt quite a long, static time in this lecture. And as most stage histories of the play will tell you, this is a speech which has tended to be drastically cut in performance. It's a speech which slows down the action, making Lavinia into an object to be contemplated, to be understood or interpreted. In some disturbing sense, the abiding rhetorical figure of Marcus's speech is that of ekphrasis, ekphrasis, the verbal description of a visual work of art. Some of you may have read Laurie Maguire's excellent book, Where There's a Will, There's a Way. It's subtitled, All I Really Needed to Know, I Learned from Shakespeare. Uh, it's a good premise, uh, but never go to this woman for first aid. For all Shakespeare's human expansiveness, he would never teach us uh, what to do uh, in a medical emergency. He doesn't really do paramedics. After Gloucester has had the vile jelly of his eyes gouged out in King Lear, a play which shows that uh, very graphic violence is not confined to this early period of Shakespeare's writing, but continues as a part of his understanding of tragedy all the way through, 
after that uh, awful scene, the quarto text has some servants come to bathe Gloucester's face and to dress his wounds. But they're not there in the revised folio text. They've been taken out in that revision. And elsewhere, Shakespearean characters are much more interested in applying poison than applying its antidote. They're more interested in stabbing than in binding wounds. So, of course, one immediate problem about Marcus's response to Lavinia is that it is completely unrealistic. What man coming across a seriously wounded woman, let alone his own niece, would spend several minutes apostrophizing the florations of blood issuing from her body rather than comforting her or beginning to treat her injuries? This is a time surely for tourniquets, not tropes, surgery, not similes. Now, in some ways, this common-sense objection to Marcus's behaviour, I think, rests on a misapprehension. And that's a widespread misapprehension that Shakespeare is a realist playwright. I don't think Shakespeare is a realist playwright, or he isn't only that. If you remember the plays of Christopher Marlowe, a strong influence on Titus Andronicus, uh, this, is, this is written very close to Marlowe's death in 1593. Uh, we can see uh, the character of Aaron the Moor, who is a kind of Barabbas from the Jew of Malta, who wants to be Tamburlaine. If you remember those plays of Marlowe's, you'll remember that people don't go to the theatre in the early 1590s for a slice of life. Kitchen sink drama, like kitchen sinks, have yet to be invented. Thomas Platter, visiting London from Switzerland in 1599, attended a performance at the Globe, and he observed that the English do not travel much and prefer to learn foreign matters at home. The idea being that the stage brings uh, unfamiliar things uh, into people's lives rather than representing the things that they already know. I think that's true in terms of the plot and particularly the language of plays of the early 1590s. So that the theatre was a non-realist medium at this point in the 1590s. We might want to modify that if we think about city comedy or citizen comedy, which you may be familiar with from works by Johnson or Decker or Middleton at the beginning of the 17th century. That might modify this at all. But if you think about the early 1590s, which is where we are with Titus, uh, it's important to remember that the theatre is non-realist, particularly given all the subsequent criticism of Shakespeare, which has found his psychological realism his most enduring claim on our attention. I'm not sure that Titus is a psychologically realistic play in this sense, in the sense that roundly drawn, plausible figures act and speak in ways which are coherently linked to an individual personality. I, don't think, I think it would be hard to find that in Titus Andronicus. And another common idea about Shakespeare, Coleridge's idea that the plays require a suspension of disbelief, a suspension of disbelief, that would mean we would overlook the absurdity of Marcus's uh, speech at this point because we thought that's what the play needed us to do. That also, I think, is something of a myth. It seems quite perverse to me to argue that plays which, for instance, consistently show characters in disguise or female characters dressing as men or which allude to the vocabulary of all the world's a stage are really requiring us to forget that these are plays, that everyone on stage is in disguise, uh, and that all female characters are played by men anyway. It seems to be flagging that up for our attention rather than attempting uh, to uh, er uh, erase it. So maybe then uh, the prob our problem with what Marcus does here is actually a problem about expectation. It's a problem about our sense that Shakespeare's characters should respond like real human people because that's what they are. 
I guess I'm arguing that maybe that's not what they are here in Titus. But Shakespeare's characters, or at least some of them, at some moments and in some plays, do reach towards more recognisable models of selfhood. At the time of Titus Andronicus, the theatre is a rapidly developing new representational technology. It's analogous in its technical advances and in its whirlwind energy to early cinema or television or internet 2.0. It's experimenting with different modes of representation. And perhaps in Marcus's lengthy address to Lavinia, we can see something of how that experiment works. Later in his career, Shakespeare is going to use the device of the soliloquy to reveal something of what's inside his characters, what Hamlet calls that within which passes show, that within which passes show. And soliloquy comes to be the means in Shakespeare's tragedies that we feel we are given insight into what's uh, inside. It's not actually particularly a technique which is taken up by other playwrights. It's not the only way the theatre has of showing uh, the, the inside. Even Shakespeare, I think, experiments with different kinds of representational modes uh, for getting to what's interior, the technique of separating out a single consciousness across different characters. We might see Othello and Iago as a kind of uh, a, a divided psyche rather than two separate people. We might think about the relationship between Macbeth and the witches uh, in a similar way. These later techniques, the division of characters, the division of personalities across different characters, or the use of soliloquy, all implicitly acknowledge that they are fictional. It's a characteristic of what's inside that it cannot be seen or known, that externalising or revealing or articulating the inner essence also changes it in some deeply unrealistic ways. Writing of a landmark production of Titus Andronicus at Stratford, directed by Deborah Warner in 1987, Stanley Wells described this speech of Marcus as a different kind of psychological portrait. Uh, it's a review you can read in the journal Shakespeare Survey. This is Wells. It became a deeply moving attempt to master the facts and thus to overcome the emotional shock of a previously unimagined horror. We had the sense of a suspension of time, as if the speech represented an articulation necessarily extended in expression, or a sequence of thoughts and emotions that might have taken no more than a second or two to flash through the character's mind. Okay, so Wells is saying that time was suspended, not because this is a realist representation of what Marcus or, or a Marcus figure might do at this point, but because this is the way that you show uh, a whole lot of whirling impressions and, and attempts to come to terms with and to process what's happened. Uh, it, once you put that into language, it takes longer than it would do in your mind. <coughs> so it's an analysis uh, derived from the stage, and I really would encourage you to read theatre reviews and reflections by actors for their insights uh, into the plays. Marcus's long speech, then, is to be understood as a kind of extended nightmare. A sequence of images flash across his brain as he encounters Lavinia, and he struggles to process them. So rather than representing real time, those minutes of poetic verse, Marcus's speech represents the dramatist's attempt to give an impression of inner perceptions. The exploration of how the inner can be represented might have its nearest analogy, perhaps, in ideas of stream of consciousness, from modernist fiction, stream of consciousness 
attempts to show what it's like to think certain things or to, to receive certain impressions and to begin to process them. But it does that in a, in a, in a style which is actually non-naturalistic, uh, even though it tries to be uh, representational. Now, the, the dimensions of early modern theatrical fiction, both spatial and temporal, need not be the same as the physical dimensions of the theatre, is a really important way in which the early modern stage is not realist. Shakespeare, as we know, rarely observes the classical unities by which a play represents continuous time. Okay, so the unity of time, as you know, suggests that the time that the play takes is the time of its action. So the action of a play should be two or three hours. We see that only in the Comedy of Errors and in The Tempest. Elsewhere, Shakespeare's not interested in that at all. Nor is he interested in the unity of place. Uh, many of Shakespeare's plays are split between two locations, aren't they? Uh, and, and sort of toggle between those um, w without regard to the unity of place. And the unity of action, the, the idea that the, the theatre should represent one single plot line unspooling itself uh, in, in one time and one place, is also something which Shakespeare entirely disregards. We have subplots uh, and, and counterplots in, in just about all of his plays. So Shakespeare doesn't, uh, doesn't stick to the unities, but he also uses stage time in some quite interesting ways. There's a moment in uh, Measure for Measure, which I'm not talking about today, but there's a moment in Measure for Measure where the Duke tells Isabella that he, she must tell a very complicated plot uh, to Mariana. And he stands at the front of the stage and says a few lines while presumably Isabella and Mariana walk around uh, and the plot is revealed to her. It's absolutely inconceivable that it could have taken that amount of time so we seem to have on the stage then two different uh, ideas of stage, of stage time, not a kind of realist single uh, sp spatial dimension. We could think about that uh, spatially when there are characters on the stage who say things that other characters don't hear. Okay, so we've tended to think about that as an aside uh, in editorial convention. But the whole idea of an aside suggests that really everybody on the stage can hear everybody else. And Shakespeare very rarely uses the space of the stage in that way. So, so sometimes the distance between characters physically on the stage in front of us is not the distance between them in the, in the fiction of the play. We have to imagine that they're further apart or that the space uh, stands in for something different. So this is all a long way of saying that perhaps Marcus's speech has been a problem to us because... Uh, it conflicts with our assumptions about the level of realism we expect from Shakespeare and our assumption that realism equals naturalism, okay, so that for things to be uh, r realistic and to get to the essence of things, they must also be naturalistic, they must occur in, uh, in real time. Perhaps then we've underestimated this play's sophistication by assuming that it needs us credulously to accept its fictions rather than to understand them just as in the play itself, Tamora, dressed as revenge in an attempt to torment Titus, assumes that he has been entirely taken in by this illusion. In fact, Titus knows very well that this is Tamora in disguise. Part of the problem, as you will have heard with Marcus's speech, is its incongruous rhetorical flourish. I want to try and talk about this under two related headings. The first is the role of women in the play, and the second is about poetry and the influence of Ovid. Let's take the second of these first, Ovid. 
So Ovid's Metamorphoses, translated by Arthur Golding in 1567, is a work on which Shakespeare draws repeatedly throughout his career. It's also a work which, as you'll know, generates a whole genre of Ovidian poetry, the so-called Epilion, or miniature epic, including Marlowe's Hero and Leander, Shakespeare's own narrative poem, Venus and Adonis, and Nash's choice of Valentines. But Ovid is often behind uh, Dunn's satires and, uh, and songs and sonnets and so on. All these works, as you'll recall, are clever, erotic verses largely targeted at a sort of young buck readership from the London Inns of Courts. They play with narrative devices of arousal and delay that are both, literally, that are both literary but obviously also sexual. They're a kind of pre-pornography, and uh, Ian Moulton has talked about them as uh, a kind of erotic writing before pornography. So Ovid provides one of the major sources for Titus Andronicus. Uh, it's interesting in this play that there is no his Roman historical source. Shakespeare seems to have made up this moment of Roman history. It doesn't come from Plutarch, which is his source for uh, the Roman political system elsewhere uh, in his plays. Uh, instead, the source is the, this, this fi fictional, erotic source, uh, Ovid. So, Ovid provides one of Titus Andronicus's major sources, but Shakespeare does something unfamiliar with the source here. He makes the source material into the source for the characters' actions. So Shakespeare has read Ovid, but so too have Titus, Lavinia, Aaron, Chiron, and Demetrius. Young Lucius is studying Ovid and brings the book on stage. The mute Lavinia uses Lucius's school book to begin to reveal what has happened to her. Now, the, the sense that Ovid and the Ovidian pattern is governing what's happening may be a way of asking uh, an important tragic question about human agency. How far do humans have the freedom to act or not, given that this story has already been written? But it also offers an interesting overlap, a potentially interesting overlap, between the figure of the dramatist and the figure of the villain. Doing bad things with his sources is something Shakespeare shares with the rapists Chiron and Demetrius. They're both perverting Ovid. They're both perverting the story of Philomel. Just as the term plot has an obvious dramatic meaning but tends in Shakespeare to have negative or criminal connotations, there is some kind of uh, version of playwriting and, and plotting which is actually negative uh, in Shakespeare's work. Think about the Duke in Measure for Measure or think about Iago in Othello. And rather as the contemporaneous smash hit, Dr. Fausta shows us that learning is not in fact a path to self-improvement, one of the uh, important ideas of the humanist revolution in education, that learning makes people better, makes them moral. Dr. Faustus shows us that, in fact, learning leads to damnation, not salvation, or it does in Faustus's case. Here, too, in Titus Andronicus, the Renaissance project of rediscovering classical texts to build a moral humanist society is distorted. Reading the classics does not make Karen and Demetrius better. It makes them worse. It makes them realise, as Marcus pointed out, that they should cut off Lavinia's hands as well, so that, unlike Philomel, she can't stitch their, her accusation into a sampler. The fact that the young child Lucius in this play is also reading Ovid makes that sense of moral and intellectual decay all the more foreboding. These literary models are engagingly 
literal in Titus. It's the only play of Shakespeare's to turn the source into a prop and to bring it on stage. Marcus, as we heard, understands what has happened to Lavinia by means of literary prototypes. Some terrius hath deflowered thee, he says, re referring to Ovid's story of Philomel's rapist. And notes that while fair Philomela, while she but lost her tongue, Lavinia's attacker has out-terriest terrius by cutting those pretty fingers off that could have sewed better than, sorry, could have better sewed than Philomel. Later, Titus asks her, Wert thou surprised, sweet girl, ravished and wronged as Philomela was? It is as if Lavinia's plight is unthinkable, except within this literary frame. Prompted by the copy of Ovid and by Marcus's example, Lavinia writes in the dirt to reveal the names of Chiron and Demetrius. The quarto stage direction manages, like the play itself, I think, to be both graphic and detached. She takes the staff in her mouth and guides it with her stumps and writes. She takes the staff in her mouth and guides it with her stumps and writes. So Ovid is the handbook both for Lavinia's rape and for its revelation. Just as another literary precedent, this time from Livy, is cited by Titus at the banquet, which ends the play. Tamora helps herself to the pie she does not realise contains the meat of her sons. Cannibalism here might be a useful metaphor for the way the play has ingested its source material. Lots of Renaissance theories of imitatio, that idea of imitating classical sources, talk about it as a model of eating uh, and digesting uh, and taking nourishment from uh, the sources. And cannibalism in this play is a sort of a wonderful perversion of that. So Tamora is, is eating a pie containing uh, Karen and Demetrius's flesh. There's a wonderful scene in Julie Taymor's film, which I really recommend to you, a film of Titus with Anthony Hopkins as, uh, as Titus, where um, uh, this wonderfully jaunty music plays, and a beautiful steaming pie on the windowsill and this sort of fluttering curtain over it. So it's a kind of 1950s ideal housewife uh, kind of moment. It's very good at juxtaposing tones uh, in the way that the play does. So tomorrow, as tomorrow eats, Titus asks Saturninus what he should do next. This request is coded as another piece of classical interpretation. This time it's from the Roman author Livy. Was it well done of rash Virginius to slay his daughter with his own right hand because she was enforced, stained and deflowered? Saturninus's gormless answer, it was is elaborated. The girl should not survive her shame and by her presence still renew her father's sorrows. Titus takes this as a pattern, precedent and lively warrant and kills his daughter. Die, die Lavinia and thy shame with thee and with thy shame thy father's sorrow die. We can see here that Lavinia's treatment throughout the play is overdetermined, pre-written we might say by the classical texts. So Titus Andronicus asks those interesting questions about tragedy's perennial fascination with the issue of agency or will. Who or what controls events? How far can individuals in tragedies be held responsible for their own actions and, more importantly, for the consequences of those actions? That's something I talk about in the lecture on Macbeth, if you're interested in seeing how this question recurs later in Shakespeare's tragedies. So the literary precedents that are so prominent in Titus complicate our response to their autonomy. 
When the characters seem to be taking their most decisive actions, they can also be seen to be puppeted by a pre-existing narrative they can't resist. Titus Andronicus takes place in a universe where Ovid rules. Rather than God being the source, the source is God. Part of the purpose, then, of Marcus's speech to and about Lavinia is to establish this pattern of parallels and precedent. It becomes a kind of extended marginal note or gloss, a kind of reading list uh, or footnote. And in that, uh, it has its nearest analogies, perhaps in E.K.'s annotations to the Shepherd's Calendar, Spencer Shepherd's Calendar, or the annotations to the Geneva Bible. That, that is, to humanist models of annotation uh, and scholarly um, explication, not to the dramatic action of the theatre. Marcus doesn't give Lavinia first aid because he's having a scholarly Ovidian moment. Now, related to the play's inscription of Ovidian material, more commonly used in the narrative poetry of the period, is its use of language. As I've already said, part of the pleasure of the Apillion, those Ovidian uh, erotic poems that are so popular in the early 1590s, part of the pleasure of that is an elaborate form of linguistic deferral, the use of rhetoric to dilate the reading experience and to defer the pleasure of narrative and sexual consummation. Rhetoric, then, is deliberately delaying in Ovidian poetry. It stops us getting to the point. It thickens response and anticipation while putting off the conclusion. Maybe that's a way of understanding Marcus's speech. And one way to think about that might be to try and consider how it works in the rhythm uh, of the whole play. I think the easiest way to do this is to look at the Norton facsimile of the first folio. That's pretty widely available in, uh, in, in Oxford libraries. So it's a facsimile text of the first folio. And the good thing about it is, for each play, it has something called through-line numbering, T-L-N, through-line numbering. That just means it numbers the lines uh, from one at the beginning to 3,000 at the end. But it does give you a sense of where you are in the play uh, if you've got a, a cumulative total of lines. <coughs> So, from the Norton uh, first folio facsimile, the folio titus is just over 2,700 lines long. And Marcus finds Lavinia, the bit that we're focusing on this morning, Marcus finds Lavinia at line 1,082. 1,082. So just a little more than a third of the way through the play. Remember that the way we tend to organise plays in the theatre now as... Uh, a slightly longer first half, an interval, and a, a slightly shorter, we hope, second half. Uh, that's a very 20th century, late 19th, into 20th century uh, phenomenon. That's not an early modern phenomenon at all. So these are not plays which we should think of structurally uh, as being in two, two halves. It's actually a really great interpretive question about plays, where you should put the interval. Re I really suggest it as a kind of interesting uh, idea about how you want to divide the plays. But it's not, a, it's not an early modern idea, it's a, it's a modern one. So, uh, we're thinking about the play as a whole thing then, rather than two, two halves. So, by line uh, 1082, which is where we are when uh, Marcus comes back from hunting to find Lavinia. By this point, what's happened? Well, we've already seen 21 of Titus's dead sons come back from the war and be buried in the tomb. We've seen him fatally stab his 22nd son, and the 23rd and 24th sons have been lured into a pit to await their own deaths, of which more in a moment by Aaron. We've seen Alabus, Tamora's son, sacrificed against the pleas of his mother. We've seen Bassianus, Lavinia's husband, imbrued all in a heap like to the slaughtered lamb. 
And then Lavinia emerges with her hands cut off, her tongue cut out and ravished, as the stage direction puts it. So it's been an eventful opening. We might want to compare the placement of violence in Shakespeare's other tragedies as a kind of comparison of how the pace of this play works, most of which speed up violence and the body count uh, towards the second half of the play, uh, later on in the play, and at least one of which, Hamlet, makes this deferral of action into later on in the play one of its main themes. Okay, so part of of what's going on in Hamlet is saying nothing much is happening, is it, really? Uh, and it's only when Polonius dies that things are starting to speed up. So perhaps in this light, Marcus's speech is intended to slow things down for a minute, to establish a moment of perverse calm, telling rather than doing. And therefore it works not primarily in relation to Lavinia's state, not primarily as a psychological revelation, but in a structural relation to the speed and rhythm of the play as a whole. It's good for us to remember that sometimes characters act in Shakespeare plays not because of their inner motives or their inner psychology, but they act because their play requires them to do this thing at this time. Okay, so we tend to be in love with a, a literary model uh, given to us uh, from modern fiction, but also from our sense of our own lives, which is that characters are preeminent. Characters come first, and then they do things um, depending on their behaviour or their personality, so that the character is preeminent. Uh, and there's lots and lots of uh, modern uh, novelists talking about how they invent their characters first, and then they're kind of slightly surprised what, what they go on to do. Okay, so uh, I don't know if any of you heard Julian Barnes uh, being talk, talking about the, uh, his sense of an ending. Booker Prize shortlisted novel on the radio this morning. He was saying exactly that. He didn't plot the whole thing, but he established the character. So that, of course, plays into our sense that we are the most important people in our story and that we make the story happen because of who we are. Not sure that that is the case for Shakespeare. I think for Shakespeare, very often, plot comes first. He has an idea of the plot he wants, and the characters emerge only to service that plot. So one answer to why do they do what they do is they do it because that's what the plot requires. So Marcus's speech in this kind of analysis might be the equivalent, say, of song in Shakespeare's other plays, a different pace, a kind of breathing space, a moment of stasis which is, is psychological, it gives us time to catch up and uh, kind of uh, take our bearings, but also it may be practical, it probably gives time for Titus's captured sons to prepare themselves for their next entrance. So related to these Ovidian and rhetorical models for Marcus's description of Lavinia, I think needs to be a proper unease about what these frameworks do to Lavinia herself. We've hardly talked about Lavinia so far. There is, of course, a severe ideological problem in seeing Lavinia merely as the occasion for different kinds of male agency, rhetorical, psychological, theatrical since that threatens to recapitulate in our criticism of the play one of the play's own most disturbing manoeuvres, the way it objectifies Lavinia and silences her. Everybody purports to understand and to interpret Lavinia. Marcus uh, in the speech that we just heard, but also Titus in his claim to interpret all her martyred signs, and many critics purport to do just the same. And it's important for us as readers uh, to be aware of the ways in which we in which our responses perhaps are predetermined by the play and that we need to try and resist 
recapping some of the play's blind spots in the way we talk about it. In describing her wounds, Marcus enacts a perverse kind of blazon. The blazon is a rhetorical catalogue of a woman's beauty, which should be familiar to us from sonnet writers and from Elizabethan love poetry more generally. So, just to recap, uh, Lavinia has sweet ornaments for hands, rosed lips flushed with honey breath, lily hands, pretty fingers. So these uh, sort of erogenous zones in the blazon tradition, you know, what are, what are the eyes like, what are the lips like, what are the hands like? Uh, we see that often, uh, as I say, in sonnets. Now, here as elsewhere in the tradition, it's clear that the blazon is a device, uh, as feminist critics have pointed out, which colonises and controls the female body by dividing it into constituent parts. It denies it human or subjective coherence and instead turns it into a dissected object of desire. In this, it, uh, Marcus's speech itself, the rhetorical structure of Marcus's speech, recapitulates the violence done to Lavinia offstage by Chiron and Demetrius by recasting it as uh, love poetry. I think we can see this happening to Lavinia, who becomes a horrid object of the play's voyeuristic gaze in the stage direction I already quoted, her hands cut off and her tongue cut out and ravished. That stage direction plays queasily between what can be shown, her stumps and bloodied mouth, and what cannot, her rape. And elsewhere, the play jumps around, switches between what can be shown and what cannot. Immediately, as Lavinia is taken off stage by Karen and Demetrius, we switch to an overly symbolic, loathsome pit in which another pair of brothers are wallowing. Titus's own sons, Quintus and Martius, have been lured into a pit by Aaron. Here, they stand in for Chiron and Demetrius. The unhallowed and blood-stained hole, that's a quotation from uh, one of the brothers, the unhallowed and blood-stained hole they found themselves in is a monstrous synecdoche for the unshowable rape. It's very uh, unsettling, morally, uh, that, Tit that Titus' own sons, Lavinia's own brothers, take on the role of these other brothers uh, in this uh, metaphorical way. Everyone, therefore, in some way, perhaps including we in the audience, wants to violate Lavinia. Her own brothers in this scene, Titus, her father, makes her carry his own severed hand. We haven't got to that bit, but believe me, it happens. Uh, his own severed hand in her, uh, in her mouth. Lavinia is always running from Saturninus, the husband she does not seek, from Karen and Demetrius, who want to rape her, from Marcus, when he comes across her uh, in the scene where focusing on the opening of Marcus's speech makes it quite clear that she's running away and she's trying to do so again at the end. Perhaps she even runs away from Titus in the play's final moments. There's no stage direction, uh, but it would be an interesting, uh, um, be an interesting sort of visual echo. But she cannot escape the gaze of the audience, which tracks her silent presence across the second two-thirds of the play. The film critic Linda Williams, in a series of interesting articles about modern horror films, identifies some interesting tropes we might try and bring to our analysis of Titus. First, she, she, she suggests that so-called gross genres, so genres which... Uh, uh, which repel us or make us enjoy uh, the, the kind of grossness uh, of what's being shown. Gross genres turn on the appeal of what she calls the sensational body. 
the sensational body, the spectacle of a body caught in the grip of intense sensation or emotion. A body caught in the grip of intense sensation or emotion. It's a great way of thinking about tragedy more generally and the, and, and the body of the tragic uh, figure. Williams points out that this body in classic horror films uh, tends to be female. So she identifies terror, terrorised female victims uh, from Fay Ray in King Kong to Janet Lee in the shower scene in Psycho and uh, on, on and on. And we might think so far, so Lavinia. Identification with these female figures, she argues, is part of the roller coaster ride of sadomasochistic thrills. It's a nice phrase, a roller coaster ride of sadomasochistic thrills in horror and slasher movies. Now, some recent critics, and I'm going to come back to ideas of sort of identification and masochism and sadism in a minute. Some recent critics have enjoyed the idea that the perverse pleasure of watching Titus has much to do with the aesthetics of excess the aesthetics of excess, which are important in the horror genre, rather than decorous ideas about tragedy and catharsis. I'm going to talk a bit more about that uh, in, in my very final remarks. You'll often find in the criticism of Titus uh, a director like Tarantino being cited. And if you're interested, if you're seriously interested in Tarantino, it'd be really, really worth thinking about that kind of uh, model and also how film criticism can help us with. Uh, the ideas about looking and consumption and, and pleasure uh, that film theory has done a lot with and theories of theatre have actually done very little with. So, Marcus's speech in, uh, in this framework serves to focalise attention on the spectacular body. It makes Lavinia's body spectacular and thus makes it an object for the horror aesthetic uh, that I'm suggesting that we might want to import. And it also, Marcus's speech here, also clarifies the play's negotiation of what can and cannot be shown and what can and cannot be spoken. But there's also a way in which Marcus's apparent inhumanity, his refusal, his failure to respond practically or empathetically, is part of a pattern in this play which dehumanises Lavinia throughout and turns her into a symbol. Let's turn back for a moment to the description of the opening scene I gave at the beginning of the lecture, Saturninus and Bassianus are vying both for the emperorship of Rome and for the hand of Titus's daughter Lavinia. Titus in this scene is a key power broker. He puts his weight behind Saturninus's claims to become emperor, and he also agrees initially to Saturninus's request to take Lavinia as a wife. So it's quite clear then that Lavinia is in some sense a representation of Rome here. She's the feminized version or emblem of the polity, almost a kind of statue or a... a uh, a, a kind of pa patroness. Critics who've been interested in the traces of the Catholic past in Shakespeare's works have pointed out that the visible damage to Lavinia's body around the mouth and hands echoes the focal science of Protestant iconoclasm on religious sculpture. Now, Lavinia is less a person in this analysis than an emblem, and thus Marcus's speech to her becomes an apostrophe to the state of Rome itself. It's a political gesture uh, it's talking about what's gone wrong with the state uh, rather than a physical one. We can see some support for this reading in Marcus's own rhetoric of healing at the play's conclusion. Let me teach you how to knit again these broken limbs into one body. So he's talking about the body politic, the body of the state, but in terms uh, which can only recall the literal uh, mutilated body we've had so much in our sights. The use of the female pronoun is developed, let Rome herself be bane unto herself. Lavinia's rape by the Goths who have been brought into the city 
is a vision of the sack of the empire. It's one that's recapitulated when Lucius returns to deliver Rome at the end of a Gothic army. Emperor Saturninus's choice of Tamora, the queen of the Goths, as his wife, over Lavinia, the uber-Roman maiden, indicates the ways in which Rome uh, has prostituted itself or diluted itself. The play has an ongoing interest in miscegenation, uh, Aaron and Tamora's baby, uh, born uh, towards the end of the play, continues an abiding interest in sex as a metaphor for civil society. So Marcus then addresses Lavinia perhaps as a kind of lament or elegy for Rome, and those metaphors of fountains and conduits and rivers become more appropriate in that civic context than the private one. They are non-human rather than inhuman. We might want to see Titus's killing of Lavinia as the final cleansing then of this broken Rome. Lucius's final words in the play stress Tamora as the source of Rome's downfall. As for that ravenous tiger Tamora, no funeral rite, nor man in mourning weed, no mournful bell shall ring her burial, but throw her forth to birds and beasts to pray. Her life was beastly and devoid of pity, and being dead, let birds on her take pity. So the play's politics here are projected onto old binaries of self and other, insider and outsider, Roman and stranger, good and bad, but they all come down in the end to the oldest binary of all, virgin and whore. Something of the inadequacy of that binary perhaps is sounded in those final two lines of Lucius. We always respect that a rhyming couplet will end a play, but a couplet with a self-rhyme, pity, pity, is an anticlimax. It's bathos, it's downbeat, it's a collapse uh, of, of language rather than an assertion of it. Okay, so, so far then I've suggested that asking why Marcus doesn't give Lavinia first aid when he encounters her in Act 2 helps us to ask questions about realism, about the representation of inner states, about the relation of the play to Ovidian poetry, about timing and pace in the theatre, about attitudes to women as suffering abject human beings or as distant symbols. And in the last couple of minutes, I'm just going to try and discuss the significance of Marcus's speech to broader generic questions about the nature of tragedy and our expectations and assumptions of what is tragic. Since Aristotle, the function of tragic downfall has been understood to inspire, through catharsis, pity and fear in the spectators. Pity and fear. That's an empathic relation, pity, and a more distanced one, fear. The implication of this generic understanding is that our relation to tragic suffering is empathic. We engage with, we don't just spectate, the torments of the characters. And of course, that's been one of the ways that tragedy has been culturally ring-fenced from other violent genres which, to which we don't give such a high status. Uh, horror, we've already touched on. Violent computer games, we might think about. Slasher pictures. These latter genres are dangerous because, uh, the, the story goes, they might encourage people to see, them as the, see themselves as the perpetrators, not the victims of violence, whereas tragedy is safe because it has a masochistic aspect. We identify with the person to whom violence is being done rather than the person doing violence. It's interesting to note in passing that early modern commentators on the theatre did not believe that violent tragedies were any different in their effects from transgressive films or games now. That moral panic about spectatorship leading to emulation is very recognisable in both late 16th and late 20th century context. 
Titus Andronicus, though, I think gives us an interesting snapshot of those conflicted and complicated processes of tragedy's affect. Marcus comes across Lavinia as a tragic spectacle. He is an on-stage audience to her anguish. He models, that's to say, a version of the spectator's response to the play's numbing, violent procedures. And as we have seen, his response is formal, aestheticizing, but lacking in human comfort. Even at the end of his speech, when he tries to suggest a kind of fellow feeling, his words are heavy. Do not draw back, for we will mourn with thee. Oh, could our mourning ease thy misery? Part of what has been unsettling to critics about the play is its disregard for the reassurances classic theories of tragedies have offered. That old question, why does tragedy give pleasure, is a disturbing one in relation to Titus Andronicus. What kind of people are we that we enjoy and in some parts of the play find ourselves laughing at, body parts being severed, sons being murdered, and as a centrepiece, a woman mute and mutilated. The length of Marcus's speech forces us to confront that. It suggests that the appeal of tragedy or of this tragedy is not that it prompts pity and fear, but that it gives us permission to suspend our empathy. We don't need to bring out the first aid either. The structure of the play at this point makes it clear we don't or can't. Marcus's speech to Lavinia thus enables us to focus on big questions about the nature of tragic empathy, the appeal of dramatic violence, and our unsettling capacity to be entertained by the suffering of others. What I've tried to show today, then, is a number of different frames we might use to look at this play and to articulate some wider concerns. If you've got follow-up questions, do uh, feel free to contact me by email. Next week, at this time, I'm going to be talking about Twelfth Night, and I think the question I want to ask is, what is the point of Antonio? Which is the point of Antonio? I think that's a question which will help us think about uh, questions of desire, sexuality, and genre in that place. So it would be great to see you then. Thank you. Thank you.